0: The Quiet Carriage, the show about books and their authors, with your host, Paul J. Laverty, and sponsored by Castlemaine's signature bookstore, Stoneman's Book Group. Broadcast on 94.9 Main FM and across the nation on the Community Radio Network. All aboard. Welcome to The Quiet Carriage. And today, my guest is about to be Alan Carter, who's discussing with me his latest book, Crocodile Tears, which is a Kato Kwong crime thriller. First, I want to read you the blurb. Detective Philip Kato Kwong is investigating the death of a retiree found hacked to pieces in his suburban Perth home. The trail leads to Timor-Leste with its recent blood-soaked history. There he reunites with an old frenemy, the spook Rory Driscoll, who, in Cato's experience, has always occupied a hazy moral terrain. Resourceful, multilingual, and hard as nails, Rory has been Canberra's go-to guy when things get sticky in the Asia-Pacific. Now Rory wants out. But first, he's needed to chaperone a motley group of whistleblowers with the price on their heads. And there's one on his too. And here's a bit about the author. Alan Carter was born in Sunderland, United Kingdom. He immigrated to Australia in 1991 and now lives just south of Hobart. He sometimes works as a television documentary director. In his spare time, he plunges into the icy Tasmanian waters for fun. He is the author of five Kato Kwong novels, and he is on the line now from his home in Tasmania. Alan Carter, thank you so much for talking to me today on The Quiet Carriage, all the way from Tasmania, I believe.
1: Uh, uh, yes, uh, great to be with you, Paul, and it's, um, it's an unusually warm day in Tassie at the moment. Is it's, it? Uh, it's a summer, high 20s.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, we're here to talk to you today about Crocodile Tears, which is out now via Fremantle Press. That's the fifth, is it, have I got this right, Kato Kwong novel? It's uh,
1: the the fifth Kato novel and uh, the fifth and final novel in the series.
0: Brilliant. Um, The final one, because I I did a bit of research on Goodreads and stuff and people were speculating that it was the final one. Is this it?
1: It really is, yeah. Um, Yeah, I announced it pretty early to get people used to the idea. Um, Kato's had a small but uh, cult following over the years, and there's been a bit of grief and a few tears shed over his um, uh, leaving the scene.
0: Well... There you go. I wasn't sure. Yeah, I wanted you to confirm that for us. But there you go. I haven't, I have to admit, read the others. I did read uh, Doom Creek, which is part of your Nick Chester series. But I I really had no problems dipping into this. And I wanted to ask you about that. You know, when you are writing as part of a series, is it hard to do that to, to design a book that caters to fans of the series, but also to new readers?
1: Um, I, I think o- over the years you I, I've managed to kind of find that balance between um, alerting people a little bit to some of the background um, without having to um, kind of dig up old bones, if you like. So mm-hmm. to, to keep the story moving, but with little references back for those who um, have been there all along. But in the end every book should uh, stand on its own merits and you should be able to go straight into that book without having to need, having need to have read the previous ones.
0: Yes. Yeah. And it's a novel that moves between Perth, uh, where you used to live, and Timor, and a few places in between. Did you do much boots on the ground research here?
1: Um, well, obviously, I was very, very familiar with the, the Perth uh, landscape, so that to present any issues. Um, I also brought part of the story to Tasmania. So that made things easier.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, the I suppose the real element of um, the the exotic side of it was taking the plot to Timor Leste. And as part of the um, this novel was my PhD novel. Mm-hmm. And as part of doing the PhD, I was able to get some uh, research support to actually go to Timor for a short while, a week or two, just to kind of get a flavour for the place to help uh, colour out what I was writing.
0: Fantastic. And it seems to be very detailed in terms of police procedure. And I want to ask you about that. Have you worked in law enforcement before? Or is this just something that you have a passion for? You you had to research lots?
1: Um, all of the... Cato novels and, indeed, the New Zealandic Chester novels are um, essentially police procedural. Um, so uh, the, there's an element of what seems like an authentic police procedural detail. I think if I wrote down um, the real police procedural detail, your average book would be pretty dull. So you, mm. you make it sound authentic enough um, to, to give it some credibility. but I haven't actually worked with the I haven't worked uh, as a police officer or anything. But um, in my previous life as a documentary maker, um, I I worked for a while on the channel seven cop reality show The Force Behind the Lines for about Mm. or for several months and so spending a lot of time day by day uh, with cops Mm -hmm. getting a pretty good idea of um, how things go down on a day by day basis as well as kind of doing some Google research and reading a lot um, of police procedural novels, I suppose. You get a lot from them too, if, if they're the particularly kind of good ones.
0: Yes, yeah. And how believable is Crocodile Tears? I don't want to go too much into this story for, for readers that haven't read it, but you know this could be a major international incident here. How, how believable is this? Could it Could it happen?
1: Um, it's interesting that, um, a couple of weeks ago in, in Hobart, the book was launched by, um, Andrew Wilkie MP, uh, who people yeah. may have heard of. He's, uh, he came to, um, fame as a, a former spy, um, blowing the whistle on the, uh, weapons of mass destruction mm-hmm. nonsense about Iraq. And when he launched it, um, he quite jokingly said he, at first he wasn't sure whether he was re- reading a, a work of fiction or a, a treatise on the last 20 years of Australian politics because a lot of it was very close to the bone for him. Wow. So the the um, bugged oil negotiations, uh, the treatment of whistleblowers, um, the um, all of that stuff is kind of within the general, you know, the public domain in, in many ways um the the uh, australian border control um stories that are out there the abuse there um quite a bit of it is drawn from real history and real headlines and given my own fictional flavor to it
0: right right and you wrote this as you discussed as part of your creative writing phd now did that add much to the book uh, and by that, I mean, like, would it have been a different novel if you if you hadn't have done it as part of the PhD program?
1: Um, I think it would, because this one, um, as well as being a police procedural, as the other Cato novels have been, there's also kind of 50-50 uh, a spy thriller as well. So it's kind of a, a hybrid book. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got with equal building with Cato is this character, Rory Driscoll, who first appeared in the... Uh, third book in the series, Bad Seed, is a um, a China-based uh, mm. spook, Australian spook who kind of uh, took care of who trouble with a, a troubleshooter for um, Australian problems in the Asia Pacific. So he reappears here in Equal Billing. Um, the PhD thesis uh, towards which the book was kind of placed was looking at Australian crime fiction and. It's placed over the last hundred years or so in um, saying something about Australia's identity and relationship with its um, Asia-Pacific neighbours. And there's been many books in what we call the island uh, sub, uh, the island crime fiction genre. That, that is books set in the archipelago to the north of Australia and mm-hmm. over into the Pacific. And way back in the 30s, yes, they were very... Um, Uh, often racist and patronising, And yes, that was a way of talking about Australia's relationship with its neighbors in the Asia-Pacific. Over the years, um, they got a bit more kind of sensitive and real about uh, that situation. Um, And so this novel was looking at trying to fit into that category of saying something about um, Australia and its relationship with its neighbors. And what better example of that than Timor Leste, where Australia, I think, would like to paint itself as um, a benevolent kind of big brother in the region. Mm-hmm. But in this particular case, it was more like a kind of a predatory, creepy uncle in many ways.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, you were an established writer before. You embarked on the PhD program. Why did you go down the PhD route?
1: Um, I have to admit I had no real need to get back into academia or uh, to have a doctor in front of my name. Um, in, in some ways, it's the unfortunate fact for, for many writers, the ones who want at the top of the bestseller list, is that you need to try and um, uh, make ends meet from year to year and the phd offered a scholarship which would help me get paid for a while to actually write a book mm-hmm. um and that's a bit of a luxury sometimes to, to to your average writer who i think the average earnings for a writer is about between 13 and fifteen thousand dollars per annum <laughs>
0: wow.
1: so yeah. uh not many of us are in this to be rich mm-hmm. we, we might want to be but uh, <laughs> the cold reality is that we're not so it was a very pragmatic approach uh yeah. to becoming dr carter yeah
0: Fantastic. And you were born in Sunderland in England. Uh
1: I was indeed, yes, northeast yeah. of England. Yeah. And it lived- sounds like it's not too far from you, from, from your action Paul.
0: Scotland. Yeah, we're not too many miles uh, Glasgow, so uh not too many miles apart. Right. Not at all. Yeah, I actually right. came to I saw that you came out in nineteen ninety one, is that right? That was the same year. Yeah. Same year I came out, nineteen ninety one. Oh right. Right. Uh the sort of post Thatcher. I think she I think she'd just gone by that stage, hadn't she? Yeah, she went in 1990. Yeah,
1: brilliant, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's almost at the same time.
0: Yeah, yeah. And then and then you, like me, lived in WA for some time, and now you're in Tasmania. And how does a writer come up with a character like Kato, like Kato Kwong?
1: Um, well, the the whole series came about, um, we were living in Hopeton at the time, on the south coast of WA, mm-hmm. and... Uh, I was still a documentary maker at that time and uh, my wife had just got a job at the local school as part of the, a school it opened up as part of the mining boom, there was a nickel mine down there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So we moved to this new town uh, with our family and me flying in, and flying out in the wrong direction wasn't that good for establishing family life in the new town. So uh, my wife Kath offered me the chance to basically be a captain the man for a year. Uh, look after things uh, on the home front, and then maybe write whatever book might be inside me. So um, it was came out came out of left of field. I wasn't expecting that. Um, so one day I was not a writer, the next day I was expected to be. Um, so when I came to creating Cato, um, one, well, there's two things going on. One is I had a strong background in working for SBS and Trying to reflect the um, the diversity of Australian society um, it, it, as often as possible, and the other thing was uh, in creating the character. I recalled a, a cop I'd met um, on the uh, that the Force Behind the Line cop show mm-hmm. one night uh, in suburban Perth and. He was a Chinese Australian cop in a suburban station and all of his colleagues referred to him as Cato. Mm -hmm. And it just got me thinking about, um, you know, that situation of having that nickname thrust upon you. I think it was meant to be good natured on the whole, Mm -hmm. but it still did mark out, uh, his difference from his colleagues. Mm. And so when I came to creating a character, the cop procedural character, he came to mind.
0: You are listening to The Quiet Carriage on 94.9 Main FM and the Community Radio Network with myself as your host, Paul J. Laverty. And now we return to my guest today, Alan Carter, discussing his latest novel, Crocodile Tears, out now via Fremantle Press. I had a debate uh, once with an editor about my own work, and it was a short story featuring an indigenous character. And I was just thinking, like, your, your two primary characters here are Chinese-Australian, and you also have Rory Driscoll, who's an Indigenous character as well. And you navigate yes. this very well, and it's clearly been accepted, which I, I think is wonderful. But for writers out there faced with this dilemma about writing for uh, characters from different cultures, how, how do you navigate this?
1: Um, well, it was a key part of the, I mean, it, it's been there all along from day one when I started, when I made that decision. Um, but then when I came to writing the, uh, doing the PhD, the, I think the ethics of representation were uh, front and centre in, in looking at what I was doing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And you know, I looked at all of the various arguments around that and the Different people who say you know, anybody, any writer can write whatever they like, mm-hmm. um, which, which might might be true, but it's not entirely kind of sensitive or ta- or tactful.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and there are ways of doing this whereby you, uh, I mean, for instance, for uh, I have, you can have sensitivity readers. Um, I had uh, a Gundagai man, Walter Saunders, um, read this book. To give me feedback on Rory Driscoll's character as a Mara man, mm-hmm. um, and to see you know whether it was um, you know completely off target or whether it was you know running along okay. So he gave me good feedback on that and some good advice about things to add in. Um, and, and likewise, basically that's what you try to do if you really are writing outside of your own experience. Um, there's always the danger of appropriation and, and to minimize that danger which will mm-hmm. never go away you you try to find ways of um you know doing as much of as much research and um, being kind of open to the idea of of having input onto the, that thing that you call your writing
0: mm-hmm and you live in Tasmania now. How long have you been there for?
1: I've been here about three years. Before that, I was uh, in New Zealand for three years, which is how the Marlboro Man Nick Chester series came about. And then before that, I was a few decades in uh, WA. So could we expect so I to see... keep s- on moving when people try to find me and catch up with me for the debts that I owe.
0: <laughs> yeah. Right. So could we expect to see a Tasmanian novel at some point?
1: It's taken me quite a while to to get up the courage to write a Tasmanian set novel. I mean, there are elements of Tasmania within *Crocodile Tears*, but to write a complete Tasmanian mm-hmm. novel, um, it feels like it's more than like everybody knows you and, and uh, will um, will be right on to you if you get it wrong. But I am about just to I am about ten fifteen thousand words into my first Tasmanian set novel, which is a standalone. Mm-hmm. And um, yes, we'll see what becomes of that.
0: Fantastic.
1: Girding my loins, I think <laughs> they say.
0: <laughs> and what is the attraction for you to write about WA and Southeast Asia? Um,
1: I, I think that the in in, in relation to crocodiles, tears. Um, I, I think it just spoke very strongly about. Uh, australia's sense of self there um i mean it we've we've got the the history of uh invasion uh mm-hmm. which already makes us a kind of a, a troubled nation to do with our own identity uh then we uh, act and look like a colonial outpost either for the us or for the uk uh, in this region and that is ebbed and flowed as to how well we've fitted in in, into that. Um, So I think it's kind of, it's on the front line of um, ideas of identity. And and in this book where I'm exploring things like um, kind of multinational kind of uh, corporate greed and irresponsibility, which a lot of, which was behind the, the, talking of the oil negotiations. And before that was behind uh, Australia turning an effective blind eye to Indonesia's invasion of Timor Mm -hmm. um, because um, people at the time could see that over the long term of of having access to the oil in the Timor gap that maybe Indonesia might be easier to deal with. Mm -hmm. So it's been a pretty ruthless um, and bloody history that um, we've we're, we're been part of. And that, that all makes for, you know, great fodder for crime fiction in my view.
0: Indeed. And what was, you spoke a bit about your past life as a documentary filmmaker. Was it always on your list of things to be uh, an author?
1: Uh, not at all. No, I, I, uh, like I said, when the offer came from Kath for me to, write this book that might have been inside me. I didn't even recall saying that I thought I might have a book inside me. I'm I'm a a big reader and I read a lot of crime fiction. Mm -hmm. Um, I maybe at one point might have speculated kind of, I wonder what it would be like to give it a go. Uh, And she obviously logged it away for future use. Um, But I I, I don't think I ever saw myself as doing this. The statistics of people who write books uh, or write manuscripts um, against those who get published and end up on a bookshelf is pretty daunting, it's about Mm -hmm. one or two percent. So, yeah, it didn't really seem it was going to be a thing for me, but then, you know, the opportunity came, so I took it. uh, And uh, my idea was I didn't think I would get published. I thought I would just, you know, have, have fun trying to write a book, really.
0: Yeah, yeah. And what was your sort of gateway book or gateway author into the world of crime fiction?
1: Um, I really followed uh, the Ian Rankin Rebus series mm. uh, big time, and I still do. Uh, and that was an example where I, I think I joined that. At, God, it might have been book 10 or 11. Um, and that worked fine for me as a standalone and then I went back to the beginning of the series and followed on to the other end of it. Uh, And so just seeing that idea of following um, an interesting character in an interesting location Mm -hmm. over many books, um, if I was going to aspire to anything, that it would be to try and do a a series character within a location.
0: Yes. Yeah. And in terms of Kato, Kwong, is it is it really over? Can you give us a bit of an exclusive here? Can um, you see yourself ever returning?
1: Uh, well, I, I think when Ian Rankin gave up on Rebus back at Exit Music, he, I think he had grave intentions of moving on and then there was a an out- <laughs> national outpouring of grief or international outpouring and yes, she came back to Rebus because that was a big seller for him. Yeah. Um, I haven't got to quite the following at Rankin House, so I don't think it would be quite as big an outpouring of grief and a a clamour for him to come back. But you never say never, do you?
0: Exactly. Exactly. Never close that door, definitely. (laughs) Alan Carter, it's been absolutely fantastic to talk to you there. Your book, Crocodile Tears, is out now via Fremantle Press. Can I put you on the spot and ask if you could leave us with a song request?
1: How about the Clash I fought the law?
0: Good choice. Alan Carter, thank you so much.
1: Cheers. Thank you, Paul.
0: are listening to The Quiet Carriage on 94.9 Main FM and the Community Radio Network. And that was I Fought the Law by The Clash. And it was the selection today of my guest, Alan Carter, who is the author of Crocodile Tears, which is out now via Fremantle Press. And that is all we have time for today on the show. Uh, For more information, you can find me across all the socials under the name. Paul J. Laverty. And until next time, keep reading.